0: This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Today we are back for part two with songwriter-director Barry Kleinbort. We focus on his legendary career as a cabaret director and writer, and his upcoming projects in this week's episode. He has written cabaret material for Penny Fuller, Brent Barrett, Anita Gillette, Petula Clark, Regis Philbin, Kay Ballard, Len Carew, Karen Mason, Heather McRae, Joe Sullivan Lesser, and many more, as you will hear. He also rewrote The Prince of Grand Street for The Jewish Rep, which we talk about, and he directed Lip Synca's popular act, Show Trash. You'll also be treated once again to performances from med-opera baritone Nathan Gunn, plus Louis Cleel, Rita Gardner, Janet Metz, and more. But before we move on to this week's episode, I want to remind you all that this Saturday, March 20th at 7pm Eastern Standard Time, is the second best stage Babel trivia night to benefit dancers over 40 come and test your knowledge and learn something new the presenters are some of broadway's best And on March 20th, these dancers over 40 and friends enter your very own living rooms. Tony nominee Leroy Reams asks about Gower Champion. Original A Chorus Line cast member Carolyn Kirsch gives Michael Bennett trivia. Learn about Agnes DeMille from Brigadoon revival performer Ken Cantor, who was actually choreographed by her. And where does Broadway intersect with ballet? Let's see if you know, and if not, you'll find out from Lawrence Luritz, who danced with the Paris Opera. And what's a theater evening without a little music? Sheet music expert Michael Levine will be on hand for a round of Name That Tune about dance songs. It's sure to be a turkey lurky time. But you won't be alone in answering these questions. A few historians and theater pros will be on hand to answer answer them. And yes, prizes are involved. Come watch Todd Buonapane, star of 30 Rock and Cinderella, Kevin David Thomas from A Little Night Music and Les Mis, Fosse historian Kevin Winkler, and lyricist librettist author Michael Colby put their knowledge to the test. Come, spend your Saturday night with us. We promise you won't regret it. And now, Barry Kleinwort. So... I would like to start by asking you about Perfect Harmony, which is about where we left off. So, oh, sure. That was a show about the Barry Sisters. Right. For those who don't know, um, can you tell us who the Barry Sisters
1: were? I, I will. Uh, the Barry Sisters were, uh, well, they were sisters. They were really sisters. And their names were uh, Minnie and Clara Bagelman. And uh, they were uh, from New York. And uh, they started out on the children's radio hour, which was a, a, a children's Jewish radio program. And uh, Clara had desired to be in show business, but her sister, Minnie, did not. But Noam, Stutt, uh, I'm trying to remember, anyhow, the host of the show, his first name was Noah, anyhow, he said he would give her $5 if she could find somebody who would sing harmony with her. So. She went to her sister Minnie and she said, we got to make the five bucks because they didn't have much money in their family. And she said, you and I, she said, do you think you can do harmony? And Minnie was unnatural. She had this unbelievable ear. So so Clara would hit a note and Minnie just knew where the third was or whatever the perfect harmony note. And, and they got the $5. And they uh, were the first people to record uh, in New York. They were the first people to record by Mir Duchesne, which they recorded in Yiddish because it was a song from the Yiddish theater. Uh, and they were totally distraught when the Andrews sisters came out with their hit recording of by Mirbiz Duchesne with a lyric by Sammy Kahn in English. And it was at that moment that Clara said, we are no longer gonna be just the Bagelman sisters, we're gonna change our names. And they picked the name Barry out of a phone book and they changed their first names to, to Claire and Myrna Barry. So unlike, and this is what's really interesting about them, I think there are two things. One, they, uh, unlike the, the other sisters, the Andrew sisters and the McGuire sisters and all these other singing groups, they were just a duo. And they never did solos, they always sang together in harmony and um, and they always they weren't twins, but they always dressed alike and and Claire was a little higher than Myrna so she even when you watch them perform. She's always stooping just a little so they look like they're the same height and from radio days they had to sing at the same mic so they learned how to sing in tandem with one using the left hand and the other using the right hand and the other hand just at their side so they got so comfortable that way that when they came out on stage their whole shtick was to appear that two people were as one so and and which is which is wild and so that was their that was their thing what i discovered working on the show uh, and we only had Claire's side of the story because Myrna had passed away on un, un, an untimely death from from a, a brain tumor. So I only had Claire's side of the story. but I said what's interesting about them is that on stage they spent all their time trying to be the same person and off stage, they could not have been more different as people if you tried. Claire was all about, wanting to be middle class and have a house in Larchmont and married to a dentist or uh you know some and just being you know middle class and having children. And Myrna was the, the bohemian. She lived in the village. She lived with a married man. She's, you know, had all all the stray animals, didn't have any kids, but she always took care of pets and, and so, and, and any kind of a cause cause, you know, against the Vietnam war, she was out there with a sign. So, so, but what was fascinating was, Claire, when I talked to her, didn't have any idea that their lives, you know, were, were so different until I wrote the show with with a friend of mine, David Levy. And, uh, and David and I went to Claire's apartment and her eyesight was very bad. And we had to read the whole script to her because she couldn't read it herself, but we had to read it. And after we finished, she didn't say a word. And we were like, you know, so we left. <laughs> and about an hour later, she called and she said, I had no idea that that was our life. And she suddenly realized it, and she was speechless. And so we called the show Perfect Harmony because we meant it ironic that, that they were as disharmonious as possible offstage, but on stage they were perfect together as a team. Um, What was interesting about them also, and then, and just to say this, is that unlike all of the other groups that were coming up, the sister acts, Myrna and Claire were dangerous. They were very sexy. They always wore low cut gowns and they always had this hot sex appeal that was part of their thing and all of these other groups like the mcguire sisters was always high collars and always trying to be very prim and proper very much like the, the 50s in america but claire and myrna were dangerous and if you ever see the footage of them you're just aware of the heat that they give off as a team so so uh, uh their arrangements are still if you ever hear them their arrangements are still wild just wild and and they were just they weren't written down they just heard each other and they improvised so uh they really were quite something and and i think it, it was uh there were other obstacles but i also think it was very hard for jewish women to achieve i mean they were popular in Florida and in Vegas until there was a problem that happened with Vegas and they were not allowed. Oh, well, it, this happened. They were they were booked into a club in Vegas and they were closing the show with an arrangement of My Yiddish Momma with the Yiddish song, My Yiddish Momma. And the owner of the club, uh, the booker of the club, said to them, he didn't want any Yiddish sung in the show. He only wanted English. And they did it anyhow. And they were blackballed from Vegas for many years to perform there because they had disobeyed the rules. Vegas was very tight and they could not get into other plays places because of it. So it's very interesting. I would have loved to have met Myrna and heard her side of the story because it would have been so interesting. You know, we only had 50% of the story, but what was interesting was Claire's daughter came to see the show and she came up to me and she said, you captured Myrna perfectly. So, considering I never met her, I could only go by the footage that I saw, and and so that was that to me was a, was a great compliment. The show well, we did six months in Florida it was really popular, and we got wonderful reviews. Um, and we just couldn't get it on in New York, and it's too bad because. Uh, it wasn't just about, there was a universality to the show that I thought carried it beyond the Yiddish, uh, Jewish theme, which was, because a woman came up to me after the show and she said, you make me want to go home and call my sister. And I thought, that's a great response. So they got the sense of these two women coming to terms with their lives, so it wasn't just, um, you know, uh, song and dance, there really was some meat on the, on the bones. So, uh, hey, I hope sometime, I, you know, the the problem is Charles, every year that goes by more and more people forget who the Berry sisters were. If they had had uh, a, a huge Broadway show or uh, films, if they had done a lot of movies or something, th- that would have made a difference in terms of how they're remembered now. Uh, but mostly they're just remembered by recordings. Um, they are still, their recordings are sold in Eastern Europe, East, for some reason, Russia. They just love these albums and they just play them all the time. So anyhow, you know, it was a great experience and I was glad to know Claire, uh, for, you know, for as many years as I did. So yeah, so that's the story of Perfect Harmony.
0: (laughs) So I want to ask you another question about writing it, which is, it seems like you did a lot of research and, of course, talking to Clara, but did you have to deviate from their real life at all to make it into a show?
1: No, what what, what, what was interesting was I said to David, I said, so that it's not a standard uh, bio- type drama, you know, with, you know, just a couple of scenes and a couple of songs. I said, what is this show about? I said, you can't write a show about two people who are clawing their way to the middle. You know, they, that, that's just not, that's just not interesting. But, 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 but then I said, well, what's the thing that's underneath all of that? And when we suddenly realized the, the difference in who they were as people, that suddenly was interesting, also to us, so that it wasn't just. So yes, we created scenes that never happened, and we also say in the in the in the show. Claire says the scene never happened. There's a reconciliation scene between the two where they understand each other, but they never had that conversation, and and Claire said to me, "If only we had had that conversation," but but mostly we stayed to the facts. Uh, as told to us. So, you know, uh, if Claire rewrote history, you know, this is the other thing, you know, when people tell stories for years and years and years, those stories become their truth. So, so you know, uh, Claire told us stories and then uh, Jerry Graff, who was uh, their musical director for many years said, she's rewritten history. <laughs> <laughs> And I, and he wouldn't tell me how, but he said it's. He said she clearly has changed how things happened, and but that was what we had to go on, and nobody had written a, a book about them, so we didn't have any other source material other than we could watch. What was fascinating was Claire had tapes of the two of them performing for German television after the war they got a call to go to Germany and perform. And they, and Claire told me they would only do it if they were allowed to sing in Yiddish on German television. So this was a big deal, Charles, I'm just telling you. And the, and she got kinescopes of the German performances. And we watched those shows, which were beautifully produced. And they had German subtitles, but they did sing in Yiddish. And they did do some in German and in English. and um they were uh beautifully as I say beautifully shot, but you really got a sense of how daring these two women were that they would make this demand and it was agreed to and there they were you know singing on German television and Yiddish it, it pretty wild pretty wild so um I I think they're um, I, th- I think their story t- should still be told that's between you and me so if you know if somebody wants to put the show on Charles, let me know. <laughs> we did a uh, a few years ago. David and I met, and we did a rewrite of the show because there were a couple of things that we wanted to change. And time, we had the the perspective of things we had wanted to get to, we didn't get to. And we did this rewrite, and the rewrite has never been produced. And I think there are some really interesting things in in the rewrite that uh, you know. So maybe maybe someday, yeah.
0: So you're working on a wonderful new show, Travels in Vermeer. So yeah. how did you come up, how did you find this property, to And before we hear the answer to that question, let's hear a song from Travels in Vermeer, the newest Barry Kleinbart musical, and this is called Stillness, and it's performed by Louis Cleal.
2: so i must stay i draw near and approach her lowered eyes and their only paint i know painted long ago but they still surprise feel the motion in the milk that she pours into a bowl Now set free Suddenly in me Rushing from my soul No, that's not it at all Something new in me has stirred It's perceptible but small There must be another word It's Stillness, no not emptiness, stillness, and this stillness makes me feel alive. She has skirts of lapis lazuli And the cap that is covering her hair Takes a master to achieve Feel the lacy weave flutter in the air She is young with a blush upon her cheek I'm wondering what she'd say if we found a way for the two of us to speak. I don't know how long I've stood in this solitary space, staring at a piece of wood on which someone drew a face. But a feeling fine and good has just wrapped me in its glow It reminds me of a time and a me from long ago with no phone and no lease Just alone feeling peace and Till
0: Property to Adapt Ah
1: uh, okay, so um Penny Fuller. Bless her heart. And I know you've interviewed her and we, we've talked about Penny. And uh, she, for Christmas, had read um, a review of this book in the New York Times. And she gave me a copy of it. And she said, I want you to read this. Uh, she said, I don't know why, but I think you're going to like it. So I thought, travels in Vermeer. I was like, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> but I started to read it and i was immediately pulled in by the the um voice of the narrator uh it's a memoir uh written by michael white and michael is a um, college professor in north carolina and he was going through a very messy divorce and a child custody battle and he decided to get on a plane and go to amsterdam to go to the Rijksmuseum. museum in order to see the Rembrandt paintings that are in the Rijksmuseum, which the Rijksmuseum has a great collection of Rembrandts. And on his way to the Rembrandts, he passes this room, which has three paintings by Vermeer, and one of them being The Milkmaid. He has this moment with the painting of The Milkmaid, and he goes back to his hotel room and he goes, there are only 35 Vermeers in the whole world. I'm going to spend the rest of this year going to see all of them. So that's his mission. He doesn't know why, but he gets, he takes all of his vacations and he goes to a different place where the Vermeers are. And by the end of his journey, which is London, and he sees the final painting, he suddenly realizes that he has changed as a person, that um, whatever was going wrong in his life, has the paintings have somehow managed to heal him. And this is an important bit of philosophy for me at this point in my life, which is I believe art has the power to heal, and which is the nature of this, that paintings that are 400 years old can change our lives for the better. So, when I suddenly decided that I wanted to, to turn this into a musical and I, a very small musical, cast of five, very, very, a, a little chamber musical, I approached Michael's agent and I heard nothing. This went on for months and months and months. And finally, they got back to me and they said that they would be willing to let me do this. And it took a year. To get them to sign the agreement, and I wouldn't do any writing until I got it in uh, in, in writing from them. So that took a year, and uh, uh, and at that point, I was so disgusted that I thought I'm not going to bother with this thing. I'm just going to write, just send them a letter, and just say I'm dropping the project. But that's when they came back with the signed agreement, and I and I and part of it was Michael had great trepidations about the piece being turned into. Something else, and and uh, every every writer I, I I would say to this to this every writer has some misgivings uh, about about you know what are you going to do, <laughs> and that I, and of course it makes everybody nervous. So, um, uh, but he finally gave me the permission, and I began writing it, and. Um, and you know what you say about the the thing about the berry sisters here's another case charles where taking facts or facts assembled by the person who lived it to the degree that he is telling the facts in the way that he sees them <laughs> so you know there there may there may be some gray area in there nonetheless how do you you can't just automatically translate those into musical speak you have to find um, what's what's the motivation. What does he have to put out there that then gets solved in the course of the show? And, um, and so I am playing with the unlocking of incidents. Uh, what I see is the main incident that really makes him come to terms with his life and be able to get on with things. And it's all from the paintings. I also realize that as soon as you tell people travels with Vermeer. People go, oh, Sunday in the park with George. No, Vermeer doesn't make an appearance in the show. Paintings do not come to life. They do not suddenly start, you know, singing at you. It's it's not that kind of show. There are pictures of the paintings themselves, but it's all through the perception of what those paintings are to the people, not the paintings themselves telling you their stories so that's a very different and, and i i had to be very careful about that because i didn't want people to think that it was just another riff on something that had already been done it's it it it, it ain't that kind of show <laughs> so so just in case you had a question about it um, it's been a, a, a it's been a, it it's been an interesting piece to write uh, I got a little sidetracked by the pandemic, unfortunately, and I spent all my time working on another piece, which I'm finishing this week. And once I finished that piece, which I'll tell you about, once I finished that piece, then it's back to Vermeer, and I'm gonna finish that up uh, in, in, hopefully in the next few months. Um, but um, as I, as you know, I sent you this one song, Stillness, which I did a demo of with Lewis Cleal singing, and I sent it to Michael White, and uh uh well I, and uh, i didn't hear anything so it was about 4 months later i got an email and he apologized for the delay in responding but he said to me it took him an entire day to get up the courage to play the demo so so that had something to do with the signing of the you know still the, the agita of signing the contract and what was i going to do he played the song loved it and he said whatever i can do to make this project happen you got me i'm i'm on board so please know that i'm i'm behind you 100% so that was that was a good thing he liked what i did and um, and he saw the way music took some of his words and was able to translate it into a whole other medium and and he got that and it got that i could do that so, uh, so that felt great. So um, uh, I haven't done other demos of songs from the thing, but I will, and, and you'll hear them. But I, I, I think it's a really interesting piece. And I also think it's a piece about what we need to talk about now, which is um, uh, art healing, because I think that uh, people don't know what to do with the arts anymore. And I, 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 or why we need them. Uh, and once this pandemic is over, uh, the arts are going to take a terrible hit because people are living without them, and therefore they can continue to live without them unless they understand why they need, why they're necessary to to continue. And it is one of the things about how we feel because of them. So, uh, so that's why it, to me, it's an important piece once we get past where we are. The piece I've been that that really got me going is this three-character play. It's not a musical, although there are some songs in it uh cuz I just can't help it. But <laughs> uh it's a play called Innenleben, uh, which means inner life in German. Uh, this piece is set in uh, uh right after the well the first act takes place right after the war, uh 2 years after the war. And it is and some of it is based on Incident that really happened, and the and then the rest of it. So I would say like twenty percent is is true and eighty percent is fiction, but it it tells about um, a, a a woman who was a huge star in the German cinema during the war, and then was blacklisted after the war, which happened to many artists. She was blacklisted for two years after the war, uh, and she comes to make a comeback. Uh, in concert, on stage, this actually did happen to somebody. And the concert was a success and she went to have a great second wave of a career. Uh, and but I've created a, an imaginary situation, an imaginary character, an imaginary situation and a relationship with her musical director and her husband, who was her film director, and it's just the three characters. But what the piece is about, is to me about something that's going on in this country now which is it's all about what is truth what is the necessity for truth um will truth become something that is no of no value uh i'm really worried about this charles honest and so the piece even though it takes place then it really has to do with what's going on now um and um she the 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 actress whose name is Monica Valley, uh, was a huge star in German film singing uh, operetta. Uh, And so uh, the songs that I have in there are my own English translations to famous uh, composer operetta songs that she sings in the show. Uh, And um, uh, what's interesting is how many of the composers were Jewish, and that she doesn't seem to uh you know that that's that's an issue <laughs> so so there's a lot of stuff going on in the piece um i i think it's some of the best writing i've done so far uh and i never say things like that but i i think these characters are really interesting and i think that um you want to know what's going to happen to them there's a real uh, mystery about what's going to happen and what's true and what isn't true and 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 uh and when does truth win out. So, anyhow, I'm almost done with it, finishing up the second act now. And so those are the two pieces. Those are the, the, the that's as current as you're going to get. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, and um, oh, but you wanted to ask about the cabaret stuff, right? Or do you, or do you have any other things about the shows?
0: No, I, I was going to say I would like to now ask you about some of the many other things you've done. That so are not- before we do move on from Mr. Kleinbort's many shows that he's written, I would like to have a little four-song concert here. So the first thing you'll hear is Love Me For Today from Second Avenue Rag, done by Catherine King Siegel. Then you'll hear The Same from Angelina. This is done by Janet Metz and Rita Gardner. And lastly, you'll hear Two Songs. Songs from *Was*. The first is *Time*. This is done by Met Opera baritone Nathan Gunn, and the second is the snow scene.
3: Go away. What? Let's go away to the seashore. What do you say? How oh, I long for the sand and trees and gentle breezes. Let's go today. Victor won't go away now. Just you and me, but I the have so many things shore. to do. How I long to be by. I know the chaperone. Shore. Why don't you go alone? Go alone. 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 Of course. How would it look? What a bunch of old ladies will say! Smetala. I'm sorry The summer time comes and the days grow long.
4: a film that plays inside my head full of things we did and words we said we were both so young didn't have a dime all we had was plenty of time but the world was me. Life was fine, and the nights were warm as apple wine. And we shared a bed that was made for two. Every night I'd tell all my dreams to you, and you promised they would come true in time. could depend on your warming touch, there was no end to your willing heart. Thinking how the two of us went astray. Still, I close my eyes, and the movie plays that remembers us in our pride. And I get to view me and a time when all that we have was time.
5: know when you're ready. Ready? Hey! Oh so that's how you wanna play, is it? You little devil, get off of me. Blessing of the seas and snow. Overnight fields of white freezing snow. Ain't it just a wonder floating down from above? I could spend my lifetime covered in snow Chilly winds'll rise and blow I don't care, make the air ten below Picture Kansas under solid ice paradise Don't this place seem almost nice In snow That ball of snow we will make it grow to twice your size. Add coal for ice, we've made a friend.
0: Made a friend. He looks kinda like Uncle Henry, except it he smells better.
5: <laughs> So's my mule.
0: Will, what's angel's wings? Do you mean to tell me
5: that you've never made snow angels? Alright, lay down right here. We'll make angels in the snow. Now, flap your arms like a bird. Bigger. There you go. Good. Now the trick is to leave no footprints. Grab my hand. Jump! Perfect. See for yourself. Don't it look like an angel slept here overnight? Oh my goodness, it's so pretty. I wish it could be winter all year
3: long. Summer has to come, come. I know.
5: That's your lot when you've got crops to grow. grow. Spring's a time to reap and sow. But for now, let's plant
3: ourselves.
5: We better go in now.
0: No, Will, please, not yet. Let's just sit here and let the snow cover us and see if it keeps us warm.
5: All right, Dorothy. Gosh, it's really coming down
3: now. White as sugar frost in snow, soon we'll be happily lost in snow.
5: Snow, so soft and still. But where's the chill that comes with winter? Snow that feels as welcome and as warm as fire glow, like summer December, we felt the
3: warm the snow, so soft and still.
1: Okay, well, you know, uh, one of the things that you will learn is that Uh, This business is all about diversification and you have to be able to juggle many different balls because you you just don't, you never know what, what, what somebody's going to throw at you and you just got to be able to just keep it in the air. So um, this cabaret business um, uh, started in 1979 because a woman by the name of Nancy Sondag called me up and she said, I need a director for a cabaret show do you know anybody who directs cabaret and i said no and she said oh well would you like to direct mine (laughs) and i went okay because when nancy was doing cabaret there was no need for cabaret directors they were a very rare commodity because people basically did sets they put together 14 or 15 songs, they sang it, they, you know, had a band behind them or a piano or whatever, and then that was it. And they weren't thinking of shows, they weren't thinking of sculpting things as an actual dramatic unity. And uh, that's morphed over the decades. So now cabaret shows are more like theater. They've got lighting, they've got better sound, they've got uh, just everything is 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 a little more highfalutin. and also they think of them more conceptually as shows. So that the performer is uh, is the star of the show, but the show is still crafted to have a beginning, middle, and an end. Uh, and so I really was in on the development of putting together these things. I never advertised. People would see a show. And then they would go, oh, who directed that show? Oh, and then that's how I would get calls. It was always somebody had seen something and then they called me. Um, and uh, and that's served me pretty well, because what I have to tell you is that I'm still learning. It never stops. You always keep figuring things out. Now, granted, some things happen faster than they used to, because you're in a situation, you go, okay, here's the building blocks, how do I put them together, but that all happens a little faster. But in terms of crafting a show, and especially shows where someone says, hey, I want to do a Sean built on the catalog of a certain lyricist or a certain composer, composer shows are really, really hard to do. They're really hard. Uh, Lyric shows in some ways are easier because lyricists usually work with a lot of different composers and you have a certain perspective that stays the same, which is the writer's intent. But you got a lot of different kinds of musical ideas to put together a show. When you have just one composer, the music can, a lot of it can be very samey. uh, And you have to find different ways of, of, doling out that composer's expression so it always feels like new information really really hard and and uh i'm working on one now uh marvin hamlish and i'm amazed at how many of his songs are exactly the same there's a musical thing that's exactly the same and uh and so then what you have to do is you have to pick the one that is the best of what that is and then you then all the other ones get discarded. Then you you just got to keep building new information. Uh, it's fascinating. It's really fascinating. But 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 you know a real challenge. Uh, but I've worked with some wonderful people. I put together shows that really where I just went. Uh, um, the the two missions, which is to showcase the singer and to also put together a program that's entertaining. I have felt that I've accomplished this more often than not. (laughs) And that I can say that with all all immodesty, that that I've more often than not been able to pull that off. And uh, especially showcasing the singer, because each person is different. Each person is an individual. And so you can't just put them in a box that was built for somebody else and say, do the show. You know, I always say, if somebody gets up there and can do your show, you're doing something wrong. Nobody else should be able to do your show. You're the only person who should be able to do this because it is a direct expression of who you are. And um, I think that's really, that that kind of trying to pers- personalize and individualize a show, that's, that's tricky stuff, you know, because you have to see who's in there. And one of the things that I think has really served me go- uh, in good stead which is working on things like the Barry sister show, Perfect Harmony, is, is you have to get in there. You have to figure out who's in there and what are they thinking? And what do I know that they don't because they're, they're living it and doing it. And what do I, what am, and me sitting back here, what am I getting from them that they don't see and being able to put that out there? And that's been, that's been really interesting. So it's kind of musical therapy because, uh, because I see things, you know, Dr. Kleinboard sees things, there, there are a couple of clients who call me Doc, Dr. Kleinboard, which just as a joke, but I think it, they do that because of the, this, this idea of being able to look inside and seeing, seeing what's going on in there. So, um, uh, yeah, so I've been doing this, I've been doing it for a long time. So 40 years, 40 years of shows, uh, uh, and I'm working on Uh, You know, there's one show that we didn't get to do in New York yet with with Karen Mason, uh, which you will love. Oh, I hope you get to see it. Uh, It's a a Kander and Ebb show. And Karen Karen doesn't usually do like a composer show or something like that. But we were uh, going to the Berkshires to perform at the William Finn Cabaret at the uh, Berkshire Theater, not Berkshire Theater Festival, the... um, Julianne Boyd's theater, Barrington stage. Yeah. And uh, we were asked to do a, a composer show. So Karen has had, uh, had was in and the world goes round off Broadway. And she was, uh, she did the demos for The Visit, which I didn't realize um, she had done, she had done a uh, uh, Clare, uh, whatever it is, <laughs> uh, Nakazaki, no, that's not, it's very close. Uh, right. But yeah, she had done, <laughs> what is it? Do you Zaki. know it? Zach Nassian, I think. Zach Nassian. I yes, that's it. Thank you. Claire Nassian And um uh I knew it was wrong coming out. Anyhow, uh she did the demos for the visit for for uh John Candor and Fred Epp. So she knew them over the years. And so there was a personal journey for her to do a Candor and Ed show. And uh we did it in the Berkshires for two performances. It was very successful, and we were booked to do it in uh at Birdland. And uh, we, you know, uh, things have taken a turn. So, uh, uh, but hopefully we'll get to do the show uh, uh, sometime at at the end of this next year. uh, Because I think it's a wonderful showcase of their work and a wonderful showcase for Karen doing their work, because she's one of those people who really knows what those songs are about. She, she gets it, and they get her. And uh, and that's where it's really a success. You walk out going, "I love Candranab and I love Karen Mason." That's it's a win win. Uh, did you want to ask me specifically about anybody I work with?
0: Oh yeah, I, I did. I did want to. I, <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask you first about Sin Twisters, which was a show you did for Penny Fuller and Anita Gillette. So was this your idea or their idea? No,
1: this was this was really interesting. Uh, Penny and I taught for uh, eight years at the Eugene O'Neill Theater Center in in Connecticut. And every year, Penny would do a different show. And she said to me, oh, and because of Penny's show, of shows I had put together for Penny Acts, Anita had seen Penny at Len Carey's house at a Christmas party. And she said, I'm thinking of putting something together. Is there somebody who I should contact? And Penny said, you should work with Barry. So I met with Anita, we hit it off immediately. And we spent a year, it really took that long, but we spent a year putting together a show called Anita Gillette, After All, that we did at Birdland. And it was hugely successful. We did did it several times, and the audience went crazy. And uh, it was worth all the effort because we tried out a, a longer version in a theater in, in Baltimore. And we made a lot of changes from that to what we finally came up with by the time we got to Birdland. So we really were working it, honing it, trying to get it right. It's a wonderful show. Anita is just a joy. I mean, she is so fantastic as a performer. And, and uh, but also, she really had a story to tell. And uh, I think people really felt that they were uh, being let in on something. So, uh, and Penny went to see Anita's show, loved it, thought it was great. So she, so Penny says, why don't we, for the O'Neill, why don't we do a duet show. Why don't we have Anita come up and why don't we do a show called together? And I said, okay, I'll do a show for the two of you. I said, what should it be called? And Penny said, Sin Twisters. And I said, what? (laughs) (laughs) And she said, it's a spoonerism. (laughs) Oh, Sin Twisters, twin sisters. Oh, so she said, I sometimes get caught up in you know, saying, turning words around. So I said, okay, so sin twisters. Okay, so Anita went with it. I wrote patter for them in which we explained the spoonerism and we continued to have spoonerisms throughout the show. We tried it out at the O'Neill and uh, we made some, we did some numbers that eh, took a bad turn. And, and, And it was really towards the end of the show. We really just, we tried things and, we were really sailing. And then suddenly we realized we were de- derailed. So we didn't, we weren't going to do the show again after that. And a few years passed by. It was surprised I mean, really we were just, and then uh, I think Anita said, well, why don't we do, why don't we try sin twisters again? Let's see what's wrong. And what was so interesting, what time brings to the package is that we saw right away what we didn't see when we were working on it the first time, which is where we went south and how we could fix it. And, and so we reworked and put in new numbers and really, uh, I would say we we reworked a good 30 to 40% of the show. We went into Birdland, it was a wow. It was just a wow. And I remember um, Sheldon Harnick came up afterwards and he said, this is the best one of all, of, of, of all, this is it, this is the best. You, you won't top this, this is the best. So we, we uh, did it several times. Um, and and the thing is, they were wonderful together. Um, I had wanted to get Anita and Penny and uh, Nancy Dussault to do a show together. And, but, but they really thought they just wanted to make a duo and not make a trio because here's the thing, Charles, and, and, and you're going to understand this, even though you didn't live through it and in a sense, I didn't live through it either. These women, uh, Penny and Anita, and I'd say Nancy and Karen Morrow, and there's, there's a whole bunch of them. They have a style of performance that has to do with what they grew up on. These women did not grow up on television. They grew up on movies and theater. So there's a sense of size that is part of their persona that has to do with what they saw and what they put out. And um, and it's a style of performance that when all of these ladies are no longer with us, and uh, gents too, when they're no longer with us, that whole style of performance is going to disappear mm-hmm. and future generations are not going to know what this is about. I contend that if we uh, uh, saw Edwin Booth perform, that we would think that it was pretty strange or Edmund Keane or, the, you know, because they were emulating what they saw and what they thought their job was. So, so. Uh, Now we have people who are growing up on television, and more to the point, they're now going to be looking at what they see on their phones. So all performance has gotten very small and very intimate, and and it doesn't come out this way in in the same way that these people are able to emanate just made able to do this because they understand the sense of size. Does This is compute. Do you, do you, you following me? So, so, and that's why I said to Penny and Anita, you've got to keep doing this because it's important that the generation now sees you do this so they will have a recollection of what that is that goes beyond being on this earth. It's something that's gotta be out there to be then perceived and kept. You know, we all wanna protect something, some some vestige of the past, what we're talking about here. So when they go out there and they perform together and there's this thing that happens. So we, uh, we decided to keep the series going. So we did a Sin, a Sin Twisters 2, and we put in different numbers and we told different stories. And I think Sin Twisters, too, is that rare sequel that, in some ways, is even better than the original because of some of the new things that we put in and some of the new stories. There's just a whole level of understanding there that is just so fantastic. Um, we're still talking about doing it again because uh, because they are both troopers to the end, and uh, and so uh, so you know what I'll I'll let you know when this is all over, but mm-hmm. um, but. Uh, they they have grown very fond of each other. And the truth of the matter is when they were both young women in this city, people would always get them confused. And so there was, and in fact, there, was, uh, there were pictures of Penny on Anita's IMDB page. There were pictures of Penny and it said Anita Gillette underneath. But my favorite thing was I went online and there was a picture of Helen Gallagher, and underneath it, it said Anita Gillette. And I so I called up Anita and I said, It's worse than you think. I said, You're not only Penny Fuller, you're also Helen Gallagher. I said, I don't know what to tell you. (laughs) So, so, uh, um, but you know, and uh, I worked with some, I mean, when I think of some of the women I worked with, Marsha Lewis, who was. So fantastic and um, and such an original, and um, uh, I'm sorry there aren't people now who get to to, to get to see Marsha because um, she was again a lesson in in the art of one woman performance. She, not just her personality, but her um, her her ability to morph into all of these different characters, and to create this world uh, for you to enter into uh, it was fantastic. And Kay Ballard, uh, I did a lot of shows with Kay, uh, and, uh, oh, well, you'll love this. So, uh, I knew Kay, I got to know Kay because of Arthur Siegel, and Arthur Siegel was her pianist for many, many years. And I got to know Arthur because Arthur was playing at a club in the village called the Cookery, and every Monday night, he, when when uh, the regular shows weren't on, he would do an evening of songs that he loved, some that he wrote, but also songs by other writers that he loved, and it was always a fun show. So we really got to know each other, and then we started having coffee and dinner and stuff. So it really became we really became buddies. So he said to me, uh, he calls me and he says, "Kate." uh is coming to town and she's doing a one-woman show off broadway called Kay ballard working 42nd street at last because we were playing this theater on 42nd street called the Kaufman theater and he said you know and i had written this sondheim parody and i had written it for uh, an actress by the name of julie kernitz and julie uh who was a very good friend and she was the first person to sing it and he said i'd love for Kay to do your sondheim parody in the show so I called Julie and I said, Kay is coming to town. Is this OK with you? And she said, yeah, sure. So uh, so I rewrote the song for Kay to do. And then I'd start getting calls from uh, Palm Springs, which is where Kay was. And she'd say, I need more material. And she'd say things like, I hate Martin Charnin. Can you write me something terrible about Martin Charnin? <laughs> <laughs> and I went something terrible about Martin Charnon. So, you know, I'm going, folks are dumb where I come from, they ain't had any larning. They seem to love the lyrics of Tim Rice and Martin Charnon. I mean, this was <laughs> right, okay. What are you gonna write with Charnon? Anyhow, so so uh I said, I can't write anything about Martin Charnin. So then she calls me with another idea and she says, I have an idea. I said, Okay, and she always had ideas, many of them Martian. So um, uh, she said, Can you write me a song about how things changed? And I said, What does that mean? And she said, Well, you know, like, when did I become a member of the establishment? And, uh, uh, and I went, okay. And so I wrote this song called when, which is on Big City Rhythm on the album. And I wrote this song called when Marsha sings it on the album, and, uh, and we put it in the show for Kay. And it was it was a big hit it really went great for her and she was very happy uh but th- but here's the thing about writing for somebody like Kay ballard or Marsha lewis or people like that is you know who you're writing for you know you've got real specifics you know what kind of words they like to say you know uh you know attitude you know what they think is funny you know you know who they think they are when they go out there, and you have all that information. And um, and that's really useful. You know, uh, uh, mentioning Sheldon Harney again, he always said that the best numbers in a show were written out of town, because you had so much specificity. You knew who was going to sing it. You knew what the audience thought of already thought was necessary and he says you, you you already had so much more stuff to guide you and i think that's true when you're gearing stuff for performers um uh i remember I, I did a show with joe sullivan lesser and her daughter emily and they were lovely and joe joe again a force a real force um and she was the original rosabella and most happy fella and uh, among other things and um uh one day she said to me, she said, Why, why aren't you writing me anything funny? And she said, You write funny for Kay. She said, Why aren't you writing me anything funny? And I couldn't say to her, because you're not funny. But that's the truth. The truth is to put something funny in Joe's mouth, it wasn't gonna work because there wasn't a natural, she has a she had a natural warmth and a natural twinkle and sparkle and a certain kind of a persona but she wasn't one of these gals who comes out and says funny thing happened to me on the way to the theater (laughs) you know bada bing it's it that's not who she is and and so when you craft something for somebody it doesn't automatically fit somebody else and uh and uh and conversely what i wrote for joe would not have been something that Kay would have been comfortable doing, either. It, it's mm-hmm. it's it's really, it's, it, it's a real tricky uh, guessing game, kind of a thing of just trying to figure, you have to, you have to decide what that person is going to put out there, what they are comfortable putting out there. So, um, uh, yeah, so I've worked with, I worked with a, uh, a lot of those ladies, and, and I worked with, and some of those guys, uh, some of the projects that but projects lead to projects. So, uh, for example, Len Carew saw Sin Twisters, and he called me because he had an idea for a show uh, that he had wanted to do for for uh, uh, for many many years, which was a combination of Shakespeare and Broadway. He he wanted to do a show where he had monologues from Shakespeare, and that they were. Uh, paired with theater songs to make little musical playlists. So uh, um, we did a show called Broadway and the Bard. And I said to him early on, I said, you know, I said, this is a potential trap. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, I said, once, once the audience gets used to the idea of monologue into song, um, they're going to be ahead of us because it's going to be monologue song, monologue song, monologue song, you know, there, there's no surprise. I said, we're going to have to construct this show so that the audience never knows what's coming next. And once they think they do, we've got to change it so that it keeps them on their toes. And that is the thing I am most happy about with that show, even though I, I love the show and I love working with Len. He was He was a dream, he was just a dream. And he's so, again, there's an element of trust that gets there, but he so understood that we had to keep finding new ways to develop the formula. And so that made it really hard to do. So people who see it look at may think it's easy, but that show was really hard to put together. So, uh, uh, and I'm just glad that we were able to do it in a way that it always felt like new information. So uh, again, you know, you learn something from from everything you do, and you mark my words, Charles. You will learn something from everything you do. You will even learn what you don't want to do, as well as what you do want to do. It's always a it's it's always uh, looking at the possibilities and deciding what you want. Um, yeah. So so um, uh, what 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 has served me is finding different ways of expressing myself that then can be of use in other mediums so as a songwriter when i'm working with musical directors and working with them on arrangements, because I also hear things in my head, I'm able to help with the construction of unusual um, uh, routines for songs and that's that's the composer coming in if Uh, We're doing a song and it needs new lyrics, then the lyricist comes in and I'm able to provide new lines to help us shift the song, if we have to shift the song for that reason. And actually, recently I did a show with a singer, Lorna Dallas, who's fantastic. She was Magnolia in in Showboat with Cleo Lane, and um, we did a wonderful show called Stages a couple of years ago. and. we had created a very funny bit, because she had been in a revival of Kismet in the West End, and she was Marcina, and she sang uh, 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 A Stranger in Paradise. And But she also got hired to perform on German television. Now, I have to tell you, I grew up Knowing a lot of Yiddish, but I never studied German. I just want to say that because even though I did these just did these German trans these English translations of German lyrics, German is not a language I studied. But but uh, she she, we thought it would be funny if she sang German uh, "A Stranger in Paradise" in German. There is no German translation of the lyric to "Stranger in Paradise," which shocks me because there are translations of so many songs this was not one of them i did the german translation and and again because i'm a composer and a lyricist i was very sensitive to how the words fit on the music and a german couple showed up at the show when we when we premiered it in uh, in at uh, in london and i so i went up to her and i said how was the translation. She said, it was great. (laughs) So I thought, I thought they were going to tell me, oh, you know, you left out a very important verb here, or, you know, or I had to find different ways to fit on the music to create the same idea of what the lyric was about, even though it wasn't a transliteration. And, but anyhow, they gave it a thumbs up and I went, if a German person gives it a thumbs up, sold. But, but the point is, you suddenly are thrust into a situation that you thought, well, I never thought I'd have to do that. But somehow you find the wherewithal, and you get it done. So uh, I hope we do that show again in New York, it's a, it's really a wonderful show. Uh, yeah, so, uh, so anyhow, as I say, all of these things become useful in some way, if you allow them to be.
0: So. I would love to ask you about someone who I know you've directed an act for who we might not think of as a cabaret singer at all, which is Regis Philbin.
1: Ah, okay, yeah. So let me tell you about Regis Philbin. Uh, This was a a very unusual situation. Uh, Oh yeah, very unusual. Um, Craig Cornelia, Craig had been working with Marvin Hamlish, and uh, and they had written a piece of special material for somebody. And Craig said to me, I don't want to do that again. I'm no good at writing special material. And, um, and he said, uh, so I recommended you for the job. So I said, OK. So um, about a week later, the phone rings. Hello. Hi, this is Marvin Hamlish. Oh, hi. He said, Craig gave me your number. Um, And he said, "Um, uh, we need to write a piece of special material material for Regis Vilbin. I said, really? He said, yeah. And I said, well, what does he want? Does he want a song called Is That Your Final Answer? And Marvin said, yes. So (laughs) that is what he wanted. I went, "Uh, okay. So. Well I went over to Marvin Hamlisch's apartment. I'm not making any of this up. I went over to Marvin's apartment and um, and uh, and Marvin said, I said uh, he said, I always write the music first. I said, okay, there's there you go. Always writes the music first. So he says, this is the tune. I said um, okay. Any other ideas? And he said, No, that's the idea. And I went, Oh, okay. I said, Well, can you give me like a verse or like maybe a little interlude or something? He says, Sure. Here's the interlude. Yeah. Here's the verse. And I said, Okay. He puts these things on a tape, cassette tape, he gives me the tape, and he says, I'm gonna be back in two weeks on Sunday morning. Uh, and we'll meet and uh, go through the song. So uh, I'm sitting in my apartment and I'm listening to this tape. I'm listening to this over and over again. And I'm trying to think, how do you write a song? And I ears again. I knew Regis was gonna sing the song. I knew Regis Philbin was gonna get up and do it. So I had some idea, but still. So I created this thing. <laughs> with, is that your final answer? Which is that Regis is talking about all through history. So that for the first verse is Adam and Eve in the garden and uh, and he's asking who ate the apples. And then it became this thing about, is that your final answer? Uh, and uh, and uh, then the second one was about Columbus discovering, um, uh, Isabella trying to send Columbus. Uh, To America and uh, he says and he says the world is flat and she goes is that your final answer? No, you know You're gonna do and then the third one is He comes home to joy his wife at night and she doesn't want to sleep with him She's tired and he says is that your final answer and and so that was the progression of the song (laughs) So I, I show up at Marvin's apartment two weeks later, I get a call on a Saturday and he says, "Uh, come over to my apartment at 8.30 tomorrow morning. We'll go through the song. So I showed up the next morning at 8.30. I showed him what I had done and he went, okay. And, uh, uh, And then this was an amazing moment for me. He went into the other room and I'm sitting in the living room and I'm looking around the apartment and he's got on the walls, Tonys, Grammys, Emmys, a Pulitzer Prize, New York drama critics, any award that you could think of, Drama Desk, they're all over there. And uh, he was writing a new show and I said, how's it going? And he says, great. He said, this one's going to legitimize me. And I had a revelation at that moment, which is uh, I understood that it doesn't matter how many awards you win. It never ends. This the 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 idea of that I still haven't proven myself never ends, and that was fascinating to me. I hope that was fascinating to you too. <laughs> and so we did the song. We uh, we uh, 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 showed it the, uh, the next week. Uh, we showed it to Regis and Joy. Both came over to Marvin's apartment. Marvin sa- said, "I have to perform it," which was too bad because he really didn't know what I had written. And but he performed it anyhow. And Regis uh, said, "Oh yeah, you know he was going into Foxwoods, and so he was going to do the number." As far as I know, he did the number i don't know how it went i don't have any idea uh all i know is that i wrote a song with marvin hamlish we wrote it for regis Philbin. he performed it at foxwoods uh, and somebody will uh, a birdie somewhere will tell me how it went uh, but i never i never heard another word <laughs> but it was an interesting experience because oh because before, when, when Marvin called me, I, I wanted to tell you this, before Marvin called me on that, sa- oh, that Saturday to come the next day to, to show him what I, I had done, he said, don't forget the cassette. And i hung up the phone and I said, why does he want the cassette? He doesn't remember what he played because Marvin was so fertile he had just had music just always coming out of that. Whatever happened that day was already erased from the memory bank. So I'm not kidding. So when when I showed up with the cassette, because he said, where's the tape? And I gave him the tape and he played it. And it was when he heard the tape, he remembered what he had played. And there were, I was told later that a nickname for a cassette tape in Hollywood was known as the Hamlish they'd say, say, I'll send you a Hamlish tomorrow. Okay. That, that, that was the nickname for a cassette tape because this was his modus operandi, cassette tapes. So uh, now, now, you know, now it would have been the smartphone, but, but uh, uh, anyhow, um, uh, I just thought that whole experience was, was Martian. It was just surreal. And uh, so I didn't direct, Regis's act I wish I had but but uh I did have a hand in it from you know in in that way yeah that was that was my that was my Regis moment. <laughs> Anybody else
0: well i I want to ask you a more general question which okay. you don't you don't have to answer which is has there ever been a performer who's been difficult to work with in cabaret for one reason or another?
1: yes uh um but i want to say that the people who are um stars generally are not difficult um uh they they may be um they may have uh, different ideas about what they think their strengths are because that that has been honed over time and that becomes what they think they're their strength is, and sometimes you have to convince them that that is not so. Uh, but uh, um, but I would say mostly they're 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 pretty generous. Um, after Penny and I did the show with Anita Gillette, she wanted to do a show with Tony Roberts because they had gone to college together, and so they knew each other for so many years. And, uh, and she really felt that Tony she, it was a wonderful cabaret performer and he had never wanted to do it. And so we put together a show that we did up at the uh, O'Neill. Um, and I want to say that they were magical together. Um, uh, but the experience afterwards, Tony said, I don't want to do that again. He said, it was too, I don't, I, he said, I need a role. I need to know that I have the that I have the the role as between me and the audience it coming out as myself he said "Eh, I didn't like it and and that was really interesting and 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 Penny and I both regret that we never got to do that show again because I have to say that was one of the best shows also for me that was one of the best shows I wrote um, because they really again what they brought together up there the years of doing and of history and of being friends uh it really was it really resonated and they did a scene uh from because they had been on stage together in the original production of barefoot in the park besides going to school together and they did a scene from barefoot in the park and that was as pure uh a distillation of what it would have been like to have been in the biltmore theater in 1964. it was you just felt you were in the presence of two people who knew what that scene was all about. And um, uh, there were other things that were, were just special, but, but the bonding, the friendship was really special. And I'm just sorry, we never did it again. Um, but Tony wasn't difficult. It had to do with his comfort level. It had to do with what he felt comfortable putting out there. Um, but I'm sorry, we didn't do it in New York. I think, I've, I think I've gotten along with almost everybody <laughs> which is kind of amazing to me. Um, I, I think one of the reasons uh, that that is so is because I, I'm a good person to audition for too and it's the same reason, that's why I'm mentioning that, is that I know what it costs people to get up there personally to get up on that stage, because I worked as an actor for for, uh, six years in New York before I went into directing and all of that. Um, And I know what it costs them to walk in the room. And so I'm very sensitive to what's what they're putting out there and what's going on. And I think that that's true as a director as well, is that I am I am aware of what's going on inside. Uh, And that makes it you know, that makes it a little, a little, little better, a little, so, so it's not a difficult situation. Um, boy, I'd have to think about that. I'm sure, I'm sure I've blocked somebody out. Then <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> I went, oh, that was a That was misery. <laughs> so
0: the last specific performer that I want to ask you about is yeah. Lipsinka.
1: that you, Oh, John Epperson, Lipsinka. Well, so John, uh, who has had a, a great and varied career as Lipsinka and who I'd seen perform for many times, called me because he suddenly decided that he he wanted to do a show as himself. And he thought I could help him do that. And, and again, we tried different versions of it just to see how it would work. And it really developed. Uh, but the show was called Show Trash. And, uh, and, and which you tried to explain that it's like carney trash or uh, other kinds of trash. It just, you can't help but put on a show. And, uh, um, and it was an autobiographical piece. And I really worked very closely in tandem with them on, on the integration of songs and uh, the shaping of the show. And we did it First at the um, studio theater in Washington D.C., he had had he had done lip synca there, and they offered an opportunity in one of their small studio theaters to do this show, and uh, and it was uh, it was a, a wonderful experience, and we got great reviews, um, and uh, and that was I got to say, working at the studio theater under at that time the the head of the theater, uh, a woman by the name of Joy Zinneman, and she was extremely um, opinionated and 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 uh, uh, and min- minced no words. And we knew that even after three days or four days of rehearsal, that Joy was gonna sit down, watch the thing and let us know what she thought. And uh, she came in and she pulled me out afterwards and she just was like, And, um, and I was like, wow, 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 wow. Um, and, um, uh, and I, I was very, I felt really disheartened and the, the, uh, uh, lighting guy, uh, we went out for a bite and I said, wow, I said, that was really tough. And he looked at me and he said, it's only a show. And I went, oh, right. It's not a life or death situation. It's a show. And I said, great. And so we rolled up our sleeves. We put in all the changes that had been asked for. Um, she was right about some of the things. Some of the other things are open to interpretation, but um, it wasn't totally just, you know, the, you know my way or the highway. I mean, it, there, she was right about some of the things she wanted and they were easy fixes. And, um, and so we did the show. Uh, we then got to do the show in New York. Uh, and we did it up at the O'Neill, and we did it uh, the last time. Uh, John did three shows in rep at the McConnelly Theater on the Lower East Side. Uh, it was called the Lipsinka box set, and it was Lipsinka, Show Trash, and uh, Passion of the Crawford. He did the show where he lip synced an entire interview uh, that Joan Crawford did. And, um, um, and what was interesting about those three shows being put together as one, it's what people, uh, what the reviewers said in DC was that it was a chance to really see who was in there, who was behind Lipsinka, and that the two pieces really did come together. If you knew the backstory, John's backstory, you understood how Lipsinka came to be, and you could see that it really created this full portrait. Um, so, uh, um, uh, so it was, it was, that, again, John just called me and we hit it off and, uh, um, uh, and he, he was, he was, he, and again, I think that any relationship that you have with people is built on trust. If you have trust, you can do anything. As soon as they don't trust you, you can accomplish nothing, and uh, the whole secret of being a successful director is instilling trust in the people that you work with. They have to feel that you are, you have their best interests at heart, and you're going to lead them the right way. If they don't feel that, then you, you've got you've got nothing. You're there, you you have a resume, but you don't have anything in the room to work. And, um and direction is really about trust um and and um, believing that and 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 an artist believing that you'll catch them. so that you're working without a net, but you'll put out your arms and you'll save them, you'll catch them. Uh, it's really important and uh, uh, and you always know the moment when the trust is has is there. There's always a certain moment and 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 you know that the things have flipped and and you now have the trust so um that's um that that's something that again that you you hone over time yeah lip sync Uh, so i mean what can i say i mean uh it's not like one show prepares me to do the other and yet they all prepare to do each and everything um you can't get to sin twisters without doing. Anita Gillette. After all, you can't get to. After all, without doing shows with Penny, you can't get to Penny unless you've done these other shows with with other singers. I, I like uh, a wonderful singer, Sarah Zahn. I did some great shows with Sarah. Uh, we did four composer shows, and all four were different, completely different, uh, and they were all, in my mind, successful because they really um, showcased. What the writer had to do, but no two shows were the same, uh, and they were uh, Carolyn Lee, Charles Strauss, Leonard Bernstein, and uh, Sammy Kahn, and they could not. And the writers couldn't have been more more different, but the shows all the. And Charles came to see uh, the show we did for of his material, and he loved it. Oh my gosh, uh, he came more than once. He just. Uh, uh, he just thought we really saw something in his writing that that somebody else had had not seen and uh, and that's that's a lovely thing, you know. So yeah.
0: So if you don't mind my going off your cabaret work for a second, I would love to ask you about revising the Prince of Grand Street, which was
1: yes. okay, I'd love to talk about that. Um, in 1978. I was, I was already a huge uh, Bob Merrill fan at this point, um, and also a huge Robert Preston fan. And I was so looking forward to the Prince of Grand Street coming to New York. It was gonna come to the Palace Theater, and I was very excited about it. And I suddenly read in the paper on Wednesday, the New York Times, that the Prince of Grand Street is closing in Boston on Saturday night. And it was not coming to New York. And I called a friend of mine at that time, Joseph Weiss, and I said, Joseph, I've never been to Boston in my life. Are you interested in going? And he said, yes. And then he calls me back and he says, I talked to Bruce Yecko and Robert Schur of Original Cast Records, and they are driving up and we can get a ride with them to see the show. So we drove up to Boston. We went to the Saturday matinee of the closing day Uh, and uh, we saw the show, and I want to tell you, that season was such a disaster that the Prince of Grand Street looked like a a masterpiece in comparison to what had actually come into town that year. That was one of the direst seasons on Broadway in in recollection. (laughs) It was one dog after another. Look up, look up that season. It is like, oh my gosh. So I thought, why aren't they? Because here's the thing: Robert Preston was a star. He was fantastic, and also Bob Merrill had written a bunch of really wonderful songs for the show. And um, so uh, there were problems with it. Don't misunderstand me, but 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 by but still, the the, the merits of it certainly outweighed the 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 problems. And my understanding is the show had opened in Philadelphia, and the reviews were not great, and that they completely overhauled the show by the time they got to Boston. And then in many cases, what was in Boston was worse than what had been in Philadelphia. I don't know that to be true, because uh, I've read several different scripts, and I I thought the Boston version was, was much improved. Plus, it has some wonderful songs that even at the 11th hour they weren't listed in the playbill because they were they were still working on it right up to the, to the last minute and two numbers that I thought were really standouts and neither was in the playbill so I was really glad to have seen the show and also uh, you know Bob um, uh, Robert Preston never did another musical after The Prince of Grand Street and he said that his two greatest performances musical theater performances both closed out of town, which was We Take the Town where he was Pancho Villa and The Prince of Grand Street. And he said, when the Prince of Grand Street closed out of town, he said, That's it. I'm not doing ever doing another musical. And you know they had approached him about doing Victor Victoria when it was going to be put on stage, about reprising his role as 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 Toddy. And he said, I'm never doing a musical again. So even though he did do another stage piece, he never, never did a musical again, um, and they really should have brought it in. So uh, I get a call from the Jewish Repertory Theater, and they don't have the finances to do productions, but they uh, are doing shows at, in, uh, as readings, you know, stage readings. And uh, the, the liaison at that time said to me, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I said, I'd like to do the Prince of Grand Street. I said, I think it's worth doing. Because I also thought I knew something of what was wrong with it. And I, it was also a chance for me to, to try to rectify some of this. Bob Merrill had already passed on, and he had written the book, Music and Lyrics. So I, I had uh, uh, three different scripts. To, to go on. Uh, and also different versions of songs. Um, uh, but I said, I'd like to do this. And, um, and then I heard that it had been someone else had said that they had the vocal score and that they would only give it to the theater if they could direct the show. And I was really angry because I was the one who was instrumental in getting this done and then it turned out that that person had lied Mm -hmm. and they didn't have the vocal score but they wanted the job and uh because uh, i had access to the vocal score uh such as it was because it was the show was never finished uh from david crane who was the show's uh was assistant conductor for the show But even with David's score, which he lent us, and which suddenly I was back on board because they didn't have the music, and I had more of the music than they did, Um, even though David had the conductor score, there were still pieces missing, and we had to reconstruct from tapes. I had live tapes of the show from Boston, and we were able to construct from the tapes, and also from some of the lead sheets that I found and things that uh, numbers that were cut and things like that, that uh, uh, We were able to construct a lot of material and I worked with Christopher Denny, who was the musical director on the show, uh, but we also had A real star and Mike, it was Mike burston and Mike Burston agreed to uh, come to New York and do the piece for the Jewish rep and it was a perfect mating of role and material he was the right guy at the right moment and he was wonderful and he so got what was wonderful about it and again so trusted that i knew that material like the back of my hand which i did and because we were able to put it together in four days and uh and we had brooke sunny Morber, a wonderful singer who i had worked with she had done was at lincoln center she had been in was at lincoln center and i knew she was perfect for the young role of, of uh, the leading guy's bride, uh, uh, the leading actor's bride, and she was terrific. So so we were able to really piece it together. And also, one of the problems with the show, and this is, again, interesting, because I always, I saw it, and, and I thought it was a problem even when I saw it then, is that you have the lead, I don't know what you know about the show, Charles, but is a leading actor of the musical, of not of the Yiddish theater at the turn of the last century. And he's a huge star. And it's kind of based on the life of Boris Tomaszewski is kind of his taking his story. But his wife dies. He's in mourning. He meets a young woman who's hired to be a professional mourner, a professional crier at his wife's funeral. And he had a very Uh, not a a great relationship with his wife, it was a very estranged marriage. He meets her, this young girl, and uh, she cries too hard so she gets fired. So he goes to apologize, falls in love with her, takes her to Atlantic City, uh, and she refuses to give herself to him because she wants to be married. And he says, I can't marry you because if I marry you before the prescribed wedding, the mourning period is over, my audience in the the Yiddish theater audience will turn on me. She says, that's the deal. He marries her. But in the show as seen in Boston, the end of the first act, he introduces his new bride to us, the audience, and everybody's happy. And I went, this is a problem. You can't build this, build this whole thing up that if I marry you, there's gonna be a problem and then there's no problem. So I said, first curtain has to be, his audience is not coming back, that they've all walked out and that he's standing there and realizing that his career is over. And that's what we did. That made sense. So that then the second act is about him trying to find a way to get his audience back because he needs them, and uh, and that really became the modus operandi for the second half. Um, and uh, but a little change like that made such a difference to how the show was perceived. Yeah. So um, and plus I think some of the songs are are wonderful. And there is this song that was not in the program, but which uh Robert Preston sang in Boston called Where Does Love Go? And I thought it was just beautiful. Um, and, uh, and that was one of the songs that I, I said, we have to take this down off a off a, a recording because um it was it was right. It was it was it it gave the hero a heart. And um and uh uh and it's all about where, so it's where does love go? Uh, it 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 comes like sudden uh, summer rain, but it leaves slow. It, it's the whole idea of that that you think you're still in love with somebody, and uh, uh, and then it says holding on to something that's melting like snow, and when you open up your hand, where did love go? That's pretty great. I I just thought you know that that was Bob Merrill at his best yeah uh and uh and he really had such a feel for for the 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 Jewishness of the material because uh, he i mean again Merrill was not his real last name like so so many of these guys uh so he he really understood that that milieu uh so uh again we never did it again we did it uh, we did it on stage that was 2003 um I, in a funny way, for me, it was completion of something that I had seen in 1978 and then I was able to uh, resurrect, you know, uh, 30 years later and, uh, and uh, 35 years later and be able to put on in New York and make a case for the material. So that was, that, that talk about completion, you know, I finished the job Bob, Mer- Bob Merrill didn't get to do. Uh, so, yeah, so that, I, I um, you know, that thing about why does something work and why doesn't something work? And sometimes it's it's the audience really does tell you. And what I've now found is that um, writers don't listen to the audience anymore. You know, uh, uh, George Abbott and Abe Burroughs and all of these great writers. Uh, Theater guys really listen to the audience. You know, Abbott knew if the audience coughed in the exact same place two performances in a row, that that was a trouble spot. That wasn't, you know, that wasn't a, a, a tuberculosis problem. It really was a problem with the show. And Abe Burroughs, the same thing. If you felt the audience suddenly turn a certain way because of what was happening on stage, if it happened over and over again, you had to address it. And I don't think people uh, apply the same rules to shows uh, in the same way. I don't think they listen to the audience. The audience, you know, think about this. The audience has plunked money down. They are paying for an experience. Nobody has held a gun to their head and said, you better go to the theater tonight or I'm gonna shoot you. They want to be there. They've paid for the experience. They've sat down. They're willing to go wherever you want to take them, once that curtain goes up, if there's a curtain, and let's go. I'm in on in for it. Let's go. If they didn't have a good time, it isn't their fault. It's something didn't happen on that stage because they're there for the right reason. They came for the right reason. They didn't come and say, "Show me." They are there for the right reason. So if it's not happening, you have to listen to them. I remember. Going to see Steel Pier in previews, and I don't know if you like the score to Steel Pier or 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 what you think of it, but uh, I sat there at at the preview and I could feel, I mean, it was like there must have been free beer in the lobby because numbers would finish and piece, sections of the audience would just leap out and they were gone, and I was like, what the hell? You could feel they were not buying it. Um, I went back after it had opened, about a week after it had opened. And I was shocked at how little had been done. Uh, Gregory Harrison had a new song, and there was like a, a, a half of a reprise of something. But most of the show was exactly the same. And that really surprised me. So I, months later, I ran into somebody connected with the show, and I said, I have to ask you. I said, I saw it before preview, uh, in previews, and I saw it after opening, and very little had changed. I said, why weren't they working on the show? And this was the answer. They thought that the critics were going to love it, and that once the critical reviews were in, the audience would love it too.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: That's not how it works. <laughs> now, some, now, sometimes that it does happen where the critics love it and suddenly the audiences get permission to love it. But if they still weren't loving it after the reviews came out, there's there's something not happening. And it would seem to me that if you had this reaction performance after performance, you would begin to realize that the reviews are not gonna change things, that something's not reaching the audience. And But that answer, I think that happens more now than it used to where they really think the the critics are going to love this and that'll change how people what people think of the show and yeah you know i mean you know you look look at you can look all through history and and you will but but there are so many shows when you look at the original reviews of these shows and the reviews are not go good and these shows go on to become classics and that's because audiences don't remember what the critics said they just like what's happening up there and then it becomes part of the, the legend of it and um and then there are other shows that didn't do well and got great reviews and the critics love them and audiences didn't love them so it's it's really up to what 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 do what are people paying for and what do they feel they got their money And one of the things about the Prince of Grand Street, and this is because this doesn't happen anymore, is that the audience at that Saturday matinee, and I want to tell you, at the end of the show, the audience was cheering. They were cheering. They were up on their feet, and they were going, yay! And it's because there was a bona fide star in the lead. Robert Preston was larger than life. He was and, you know, again, think about it. He was so wrong for this part. <laughs> he was so Gentile, <laughs> you know, playing this great star of the Yiddish theater. I mean, you know, it's like, what? And yet, it was about, it was star power. He, as soon as he walked out on that stage, you were in the hands of one of the greats. And, and he knew it. And he knew he had the material here to make that happen. And that reaction at the end of the show, even with the problems in the show, didn't make any difference, because as far as that audience was concerned, they had gotten what they came to see, which was a real star, a real star. And, and we don't get to see that a lot now, because shows aren't built around stars. And that's changed things a lot. And it makes you think about how many shows ran because of who was in it, that whole idea of, of you know what a what a performance a legendary performance so um uh, that over overrides a lot of you know a lot of problems sometimes uh, when you don't have stars then you got to look at the material you know so uh, but but he was he was something you know and you've you've seen the music the music you've seen the movie of the music man i mean you, you you could see what that he i mean he has charm charm to spare <laughs> You know, so uh so anyhow that's that was that was that was an important uh bit of uh completion for me, believe it or not, to do the Prince of Grand Street in New York. Weird. Weird. Uh yeah. Any anything else?
0: So the last thing I want to ask you about is to bring our interview up to the present day, the cabarets for the York theater that you've been doing over Corn. Yeah.
1: Okay. So again, I, I was asked, uh, uh, Ricky Kane Larimer, who is the producer, uh, co-producer with the York, and she called me and she says, look, we're doing this cabaret series. And she loves the shows that uh, I put together that she's seen. I did a show for uh, Anita, a solo show recent, uh, her last show, which was about uh, her relationship with Irving Berlin. It was called Me and Mr. B. and uh, And I said, Anita, you're one of the last people on this planet who can say Irving Berlin was my friend, you know. So uh, and so, it was an important show for her to do, and um, and uh, that 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 was an interesting show because she kept telling me about all she got from Irving Berlin and how he did this and did this. Then, you know, oh, no, 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 no. She said all the things that she went in there and she was good for him because she made him feel better about himself and cheered him up. And they talked about fishing and all these things. She went on and I said, and what did you get? And she looked at me like, what? I said, well, I said, "I understand. All you're telling me is about what you gave him." I said, "But what did you get? Was there any reciprocity?" And she never realized that. And this is what—why a director is also a therapist. Uh, she hadn't realized that Irving Berlin was the father that she never had. That he listened to her. That he heard when she was when she was having problems with her marriage. He was there to confide and to counsel. So it wasn't a one-way street. It really was this two-way street, and I think that show is is dynamite. Uh, uh, me and Mr. B, I think, because we really see we we see the man, not just the the songwriter. We really see the guy, and through her eyes. So, um, uh, um, Ricky came to see that show, and she loved it. And she came to see some other shows, Lorna, and some other shows. And uh, she said, I'd really like you to be on board with this thing. So I said, OK. So um, we uh, tried to pick people who had some history with the York uh, and also who would be wonderful to do solo shows as well. Uh, uh, I had uh, one of the people uh, who I had worked with on a Jamie DeRoy show was Alton Fitzgerald White, and I I wrote him and I said, would you be willing to do a, a solo show? And he said, absolutely. And he was fantastic. He was just fantastic. And he was the first. Um, uh, and we had Ben Vereen and Karen Mason and Cleo Blackhurst and Georgia Boot, who was in uh, The Band's Visit, and uh, Robert Creighton, who was the star of Cagney and was just in Frozen. Uh, and Leroy Reams and uh, Lilius White. Uh, who am I forgetting? I think that I think that's everybody. And uh, and Lilius is another person who. What separates the men from the boys, or the women from the girls, whatever, however you want to say, or from the people from the people, uh, is understanding the camera. And what's fascinating about that is to see the people who understand that this device is a means, just like we're talking right now, it's a means for me to get there to you, even though you're blocks away, to make it feel like we're in the same room. And it was fascinating for me to see who understood how to immediately transport themselves through the box, through the camera, into somebody's living room. Uh, and 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 that was the challenge. And I would say everybody found a way in. Um, and that's and a comfort to because they were there was no audience. so they had to find a way to create that situation without actually having it. Um, and, um, uh, but and the you know and and that kind of intimacy, you know that's the joy of the live performance it, whenever it comes back is live performance is about breaking down the walls breaking down the barriers whether it's in a theater or whether it's in a cabaret wherever it is it's about especially in a cabaret the, the basics of a cabaret are the performer comes out and says without saying it indicates that i see you you see me let's get down to business there's no fourth wall we are all here all in this together and and there's no there's nothing protecting me from you and you from me which is why cabaret when people understand that is so exhilarating because the energy that is transmitted and bounced up and back between the audience and the performer is charged it's just exciting you're in the presence of this Thing that's happening and it's happening in real time. And that was the kind of thing that we tried to uh, through a camera, try to recreate within a living room. And uh, so it was a fun experience, believe it or not. Um, uh, uh, and some people were more comfortable than others in terms of allowing that to happen. But that made part of the adventure, uh, made for, for an adventure uh, and, uh, and the series has been very successfully received, uh, and, uh, and it's been financially successful, even better, Uh, and, you know, you see people like Ben Vereen and Leroy, that's what I'm saying, that thing about what I was saying about, um, uh, Anita and Penny and Nancy Dussault and people like that, Leroy and, um, Uh, and uh, Ben Vereen have that thing that I'm talking about is a certain sense of size, that was honed by the work that they did. But it's good show. And so yeah, so so we just finished that up. And, um, and so this next year will be like, I'm just going to keep writing, I think that um, uh, will be will still be you know, uh, dealing with this by next fall, uh, but cabaret will come back. Live performance will come back, and uh, uh, and I, I I'm looking forward to those shows. And um, and the other thing is, um, I'm still figuring it out. I mean, it doesn't matter how old you get, you're still trying to figure it out. the the The, the questions stay fresh and unanswered. And you have to, you know, I think I told you about Harold Roman, the last thing and about how he continued to study up until he was in his late 70s. And he was still trying to figure it out, that it just doesn't end when you have, when you have, when you reach whatever you think that is, and you've had a success and you go, well, that's it, I'm done, it's Marvin Hamlish with with every award you can think of and said this one's going to legitimize me it's the same thing which is i'm still up at bat for the first time every time i go out there and i still have to the, i'm i haven't figured it out i haven't proven it to myself yet i still have to figure it out um i think it's what keeps keeps the the uh, pot percolating i think once you've decided you've done it then you should just pack your bags and uh, you know go to a beach somewhere <laughs> because you know I would say you know uh, you know listen when I when I when I saw Charles a uh, Strauss a couple of years ago and I said what are you doing and he said well you know he says I'm writing and I said Charles you're ninety and uh, I said don't you want to take a trip and he says I only want to sit at my piano and I want to create. That's that's what makes me happy, and I thought that's that's the thing, that's the mm-hmm. thing. Um, the, the, the the these these people only are happy when they're when they're able to work, because it's part of their process. It's part of what um, charges them, enthuses them. It doesn't mean they don't love their families or that they they don't have other interests. It's if there's a mission. There's still a mission. There's a goal. There's something that hasn't been accomplished and still needs to be accomplished. Uh, you know, Frank Lesser was studying orchestration at the end of his life. He 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 did. He wasn't he wasn't satisfied to have written an opera. You know, most happy fellows an opera for all intents purposes. Um, he wanted to keep learning. He wanted to understand vocal arranging. He wanted to understand. Uh, so he was going to continue to keep pushing the envelope. Um, and I I think that's, I, I think I look at these uh, the, these writers from the past, and I try to say, look at what they accomplished and what, what they still were striving to do. And every time I work on a new project, I keep saying, am I going into water that is deeper than i went into the last time and am i able to keep my head above or am i going and <laughs> and uh and but that's the challenge the challenge is to say it's it's all well and good i could take the safe route and stand you know and stand on the pier or i could really go out there and see if i can i can paddle and, and stay above the water and that's the challenge and vermeer is very much me going further and further uh, that's 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 why I want to do it and you know what it doesn't matter if it ever gets produced or not it's about it's about what I want f- from it you know will I get what I want from it which is the challenge so I know that's kooky isn't it
0: no I, I think it makes sense
1: okay <laughs> thank you else?
0: so much for doing this it was an honor to be able to talk to you. And listeners, thank you for tuning in. And remember to come back next time when we are joined by Broadway dancer Carolyn Kirsch. Carolyn Kirsch has appeared in the original Broadway productions of such legendary shows as How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, Coco, Promises, Promises, Hallelujah Baby, Sweet Charity, Dear World, A Chorus Line, Happy New Year, and more. She also appeared in the Folly Berger, La Grosse Valise, and starred on opposite Zero Mostel in Ulysses in Nighttown. She was in the original casts of two legendary shows that closed out of town, Breakfast at Tiffany's and Lolita, My Love. She appeared as Velma in the National Tower of Chicago, and you may also have seen her on the road in Peter Pan and Company. So I hope you'll enjoy that episode, and thanks for tuning in.